Amen. Thank you, Ty. Yeah, my name's Doug, and uh, hey, before we get too far this morning, whether you're tuning in online or you're here in the room, can I ask you to pray for a friend of mine and a fellow pastor, Andrew Rutten, and uh, his wife, Bailey, helped plant Providence Church over in Omaha. It's part of the City Light family of churches that we're also a part of, and uh, they're friends. We celebrate that they planted a church, and they're multiplying disciples, but we also grieve because back in November, Andrew had to be rushed to the ER after he had a seizure, and they discover he has hypertension and chronic kidney failure, and so he's going to need a transplant, and really, guys, the road's already been hard for them, so I would just love if we as a church could pray for Andrew and Bailey and for their church. Do you mind praying with me? Let's pray. Father God, we right now, we ask that you would draw near uh, to Andrew. Uh, Would you comfort him, assure him that he is your son, that he is seen and known even in this time where it feels like so much of his life is thrown off balance, spending time in the hospital, unable to work fully, not knowing what's going to come next. Assure him that you see him, you know him, and you love him. Pray for Bailey and uh, their two sweet boys. Would you comfort them and give them strength and power in this time? Pray for Providence, the church, that your Holy Spirit would be upon them and you'd empower them to keep making disciples and multiplying churches even through this time. And Jesus, we also, we got to ask, oh, would you bring a gift of healing to Andrew? Would you work a miracle on his behalf and for the glory of your kingdom? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Awesome. Thanks for praying with me. Uh, All right. I'm going to start the sermon by saying a particular word. But before I say it, just kind of note in your head what comes to mind when I say this word. You ready? The word is vulnerable. Vulnerable. A few weeks ago, my nephew asked me, Uncle Doug, why do you keep talking about your arms, your muscles like that so much? Um, I was yet again joking about my muscles or the lack thereof, and even my nephew picked up on my sarcasm and wondered why I make fun of myself so much. And so I told him, well, buddy, you know, I grew up with long, lanky arms. I've never really had muscles. And so I learned if I make fun of myself, other people don't make fun of me as much. In other words, I don't like being vulnerable. I also grew up with a cereal bowl chest. Like literally, I could lay down and pour some cereal into milk into about a fist-sized hole in my chest, and I could have eaten breakfast. So I like hated shirts versus skins at soccer practice. Um, I hated swimming with my shirt off, and I also learned there, if I can make fun of myself before the other kids, then the other kids won't make fun of me quite so badly. Again, I don't like being vulnerable. None of us do, right? Like we lock our cars, uh, we lock our houses, we lock our computers, and we lock our phones, and the only thing to get into my phone is an actual scan of my face. We deny our faults, we cover our blemishes, we hide our weaknesses, and man, we run like mad from anything that might make us feel vulnerable, And because of that, Joshua chapter 5 this morning might make us all feel a little uncomfortable. It might be a little bit unwanted, a little bit shocking. City Light this morning, we're in one chapter of the Bible, and it's got three stories, all of which point to God's people being vulnerable. In fact, God 
ask his people to be vulnerable, to be weak. You see, God gives his people courage, but it's not the kind of like tough guy, macho, put on your armor and show them who's boss kind of courage. It's the opposite. What we find is that God gives his people, God gives us courage to be vulnerable. Vulnerable in places of power, in places of need, and in places of community. That's where we're going this morning. So if you got your Bibles, go Joshua chapter 5 verse 1. And first we're going to look at how God gives us courage to be vulnerable in a place of power. Joshua 5 verse 1 reads like this. As soon as all the kings of the Amorites, those would have been like the bad guys, who were beyond the Jordan to the west, and all the kings of the Canaanites, more bad guys, who were by the sea. As soon as they heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over, their hearts melted, and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. So Israel here, they're in a place of power. Their God just showed up and stopped the river and flexed his muscles. Boom! awesome courage, right? The enemy kings are shaken in their boots. Their hearts melted. Their spirits had gone out from them. So the enemies are in a place of weakness. God's people are in a place of power. So it would only make sense that now's the time. This is the time to like charge the gates, shoot the arrows, draw the swords, and go kick some tail. We'll read on. Verse 2. At that time, <laughs> at that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. What? That's strange. I mean, here's the people of God. They just went through a miracle, which is awesome. But when they went through the miracle, they ended up in enemy territory, okay? Like when Israel crossed over the Jordan River on dry ground, they went from safe to hostile. But no big deal. They're in enemy territory, but the enemies are scared. They're afraid, right? Their spirits went out from them. Their hearts melted. So all Israel has to do is take advantage of their place of power and go fight now. But instead, God tells Joshua to circumcise the men of Israel. Right when they were in their place of power, God calls them to do something that's going to leave them incredibly vulnerable. If Joshua obeys God here, he's going to have a bunch of guys who are hurting for a while. A bunch of dudes laid up on their Middle Eastern couches wishing they would have invented ice packs already. You know, like you don't get circumcised one day and go to battle the next. But verse three, Joshua obeys. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel. Skip down to verse eight. When the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. I bet so, right? It only makes sense. Now, what is going on here? How do we make sense of this? Let me see if I can explain it a little bit. Circumcision was the sign of the covenant between God and his people. Just like my wedding ring is the sign of the marriage covenant between me and Whitney, circumcision was the sign of the covenant between God and his people. And this outward, external sign of the covenant 
was meant to point to the internal, the eternal reality of their covenant with God. I'll take it a step further. The vulnerability of that external sign of their relationship with God, their covenant relationship with God, was meant to be a pointer to the internal vulnerability of their relationship with God at a heart level. As early as Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 16, God tells his people to circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. Later in the New Testament, Romans chapter 2 says, circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit. Colossians chapter 2 says, we're now circumcised with the circumcision not made without hands. Hallelujah, right? When God calls his people into covenant, when God calls his people into relationship, he calls us to be vulnerable with our hearts towards him. Before God sends his people to do mighty battles, he calls them to be vulnerable. Even in, and especially in a place of power, God calls his people to be vulnerable. He did it with Abraham back in Genesis chapter 17. He did it with Moses in Exodus chapter 4, and now he's doing it again with his people in Joshua chapter 5. Here's the connection for us, City Light. Your heart is the most powerful part of who you are. Oftentimes we just think of our hearts as like these little things inside of us that feel emotions and want to buy chocolates on Valentine's Day, right? And Hollywood tells us, hey, chase after your heart, pursue your heart, which what they mean by that is just follow after your fleeting and fluttering emotions and see where they take you. Oftentimes we think of our hearts as like these little cupids and we shoot arrows at things we like and see if it sticks. But the Bible talks about our hearts really differently. The Bible says that our heart is the spring of life. Our heart directs what we think and how we feel and the decisions we make and how we behave. Our hearts are the directors of our lives. They are behind all that we say, all that we think, all that we do. We can think of our hearts like this. This on the screen is a PlayStation 4 controller. My son has a PS4, and he loves to play Madden NFL. He's really good at it. And what I've learned in watching him grow and get better at the game is my son can like know all the statistics and facts and figures about his favorite players and get all that knowledge. And my son, like he can memorize different plays and know which team has certain plays. And my son can like stack his roster with 97s, 98s, 99s, Mahomes and Kelsey's, like all that sort of stuff. But at the end of the day, what really determines what happens in the game is how he handles the controller. The controller determines the game. Which button gets pushed when determines and it directs the play, the outcome, and ultimately the victory or the loss of the team. And like a controller is to a Madden NFL game, our hearts are to life. We can learn all sorts of knowledge and information and facts and figures about life, but at the end of the day, it's our hearts that direct our decisions. We can have all sorts of different passions and big dreams and wishes for life and emotions, but at the end of the day, it's our hearts that drive what we do in life. Our intelligence and our emotions, our IQ and our EQ, are both driven by our hearts. 
So when God says that the sign of our relationship with him is the circumcision of our hearts, God is calling us to be vulnerable to him in the most powerful part of who we are. All right, that's a long explanation for us to try to understand Joshua 5 and what it means to us today. Let me just try to make it practical to us. How can you know, how can we know if we're being vulnerable to God in our hearts? Well, try this for one. The next time you make a decision, uh, a decision about something to purchase, a job, a relationship to continue or not to continue, a new hobby, or all sorts of different decisions. When you're making a decision, watch what influences you let into your heart while you're making the decision. Do you only rely on knowledge and intelligence and facts and figures, or do you also ask, what does God want in this? Or do you only rely on like your emotions and your feelings and what you're feeling passionate about in that moment, or do you also ask, what does God want in this? Like in your decision-making processes, do you avoid or ignore or forget God, or are you vulnerable to God? Are you open to God and what he says as you make decisions? Another way you can discern, am I being vulnerable in my heart to God, is to ask yourself this. Is there a part of your heart that you keep hidden from God? Right, a part that's like closed off, covered over, armored up, and nobody gets to go to that part of your heart, especially God. And all the while, he's inviting you and wanting to give you courage to be vulnerable to him, even in that part of your heart. Another way we can apply this to our lives is just to think, when you are in a place of power, right, maybe parents with your kids, or teachers with students, or coaches, employers, leaders, supervisors, anything like that, when you're in a place of power, how do you handle that place of power? Do you use your power to serve others and bless others and seek the interest of others? Or do you use that place of power to insulate from others or seek your own interest or take over and try to control others? God gives us courage to be vulnerable even in places of power. That's the first story. Joshua chapter 5 continues, and uh, God shows us that he gives us courage to be vulnerable in a place of need. A place of need. Look at Joshua chapter 5, verse 10. While the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the evening on the plains of Jericho. Awesome. That's great. Here's what's happening. They get circumcised. They keep the Passover. They are renewing covenant with God. They're like recommitting afresh to relationship with God. That's what's happening. Verse 11. And the day after the Passover, on that very day, They ate of the produce of the land, their new promised land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. Now catch this in verse 12. And the manna ceased. The manna stopped the day after they ate of the produce of the land. And there was no longer manna for the people of Israel. Here's what you got to know. For 40 years now, the breakfast, lunch, and dinner menu for God's people hadn't changed. Hey, mom, what's for breakfast? Manna. 
Hey, Dad, got anything for lunch? Yep, I do. It's manna. What about dinner? We got some more manna for dinner, right? The same thing over and over again. The menu hadn't changed. God had been faithful to provide and provide and provide day after day after day. It was awfully repetitive, but it was also awfully faithful. And now here they are in the new land, renewing covenant with God, and immediately the manna stops. The menu changed. And the people of Israel are vulnerable in a place of need. Even one of the most basic human needs, food. They're vulnerable in that place of need. It was a reminder to them then and to us today that we are always vulnerable. We are always dependent on God, even with our most basic needs. We are. Even when we have a steady job and good health, like when we have food on the table and clothes on our back, sometimes it's easy to forget that we're actually dependent on God. We're vulnerable to him for our needs. Uh, A while back, I was getting lunch with a pastor here in town, just reconnecting and trying to catch up. And he told me uh, this last fall, he got COVID. And for the first two weeks that he had COVID, he was laid out on his bed, fevers, aches, chills, all that sort of stuff, just feeling terrible. And then after two weeks, he couldn't breathe very well, so he had to go to the hospital for five days. Gets out of the hospital, has to go back home for another two weeks, just trying to recover and get back to normal before he was able to return to work, leading, preaching, and teaching the Bible. He said for him, it was like a reminder that he's vulnerable to God. He's vulnerable even in one of his most basic needs, health. I don't know about you, but I prefer to just kind of ignore that I'm vulnerable in this area, right? I'd rather just kind of forget. Just, I'd rather just assume, you know what? The salary's going to be there. The food, it'll be on the table, of course. My health will be fine. But just like God did with his people in Joshua chapter 5, God also wants to give us courage to be vulnerable even in our most basic needs. How might we do that? Like, how can we enter into this? Well, one way we could do it is through a thing called fasting, where we intentionally choose to not eat, to skip a meal or two or three, to remind ourselves that our need for God is greater than even our need for food. Another way we can do it is through financial giving, right? Strategic generosity, where we give away 10% of our income on the front end of the pay period instead of the back end of the pay period, all the while saying, God... (laughs) I'm going to give trusting that you're going to meet my needs. I'm going to give on the front end so that I can see your faithfulness around on the back end. Another way our church did it last year was we rallied together. Do you remember this? And we turned this room into a food pantry. We were able to distribute and provide meals for like 50,000 people in our city. Over $20,000 worth of food that we just got to bless people with and serve people with. And so whatever it is, fasting, giving, volunteering, all of those remind us that we are vulnerable to God with our most basic needs, and God is faithful to meet our most basic needs. Okay, last story in Joshua chapter 5 comes in verse 13. It's one last moment when God gives Joshua in particular, it's zoomed in on God and Joshua, and he gives Joshua the courage to be vulnerable We've seen God give his people the courage to be vulnerable in a place of power and in a place of need. And now God gives Joshua courage to be vulnerable in a place or really with his community. Okay, let me try to explain. We all have our tribes, don't we? 
like those pockets of people that we love to be with. We love to hang out with them. It's that community that gets us and we get them. Like we belong with them. We agree with them. They agree with us. We connect with them. They connect with us. Whether it's other people this morning who are wearing Chiefs gear, thank you. We're on the same team. Go Chiefs Kingdom. We're in the same tribe, right? Or maybe it's other people who follow the Premier League and root for Liverpool or Manchester United or Manchester City. If you don't know any of those names, we're not on the same tribe. I'm sorry, okay? Or maybe it's your political party or a a subset of your particular political party. Maybe it's moms who are at the same stage of parenting as you are. Maybe it's dads who like to tailgate party at Target for hours on end while their wives are inside buying baby gear for the kids, right? We've all got our tribes, and here we're about to see that God gives us courage to be vulnerable even with our tribes, even with our communities. Joshua chapter 5, verse 13. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. So here's Joshua, right? He's about to lead a massive army into some major battles and like years of warfare, okay? And before he enters into the first major battle, Joshua's like, I'm just gonna go clear my head. I'm gonna go for a walk and get away, get some quiet time. And then he runs into this dude who's got a sword, okay? The story continues. And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us? Or for our adversaries? It's a good question, right? Like if you're Joshua, you're going, hey, are you with me or are you with them? Like are you with me and my team or are you with them and their team? Because I need to know. I'm drawing a line in the sand. Who are you rooting for? Who are you fighting for? Are you for us or are you for our adversaries? Verse 14. And he, this is the dude with the sword, all right? He said, no. (laughs) No? What kind of answer is that? Like if I were Joshua, I'd be like, I didn't ask you a yes or no question. I asked you to identify with either me or with them. I asked you to identify with either me and my team or them and their team. And yet this dude with the sword says, no. Thankfully, he continues. Verse 14, he said, no, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. Joshua thought he was the commander of the army of the Lord. Nope. This guy is. Joshua asked this guy to pick a side. Nope. This guy did not pick a side. This guy fights his own fight, wages his own war. This man with a sword drawn turns out to be the Lord on earth. The Lord Almighty coming down to planet earth for a little quality time with Joshua before Joshua enters into the battle. And right when Joshua needs to hear from God, Are you on my team or not? God says, nope, I am who I am. Moses had this moment at the burning bush back in Exodus 3, and now Joshua gets his moment here in Joshua chapter 5. Right when he needed to hear from God, are you on my team? God says, nope, I'm God. I fight my own battles and I wage my own wars. You see, Joshua was doing what we all do, right? We pick our tribe, we pick our team, and then we want God to be on our team and against all those other bad guys. I'm right, they're wrong. God, you agree with me, and you're on my side, right? And God says to us, no, I'm God. I wage my own wars, and I fight my own fights. Uh, A few weeks back, there was a guy doing some work in our house, 
And after we got done, we were just sitting around chatting, um, I guess just being Iowans, doing what Iowans do. So uh, we're sitting around chatting, and he lives about an hour north of here in a small town. And a few years back, his church went through like a nasty, terrible church split, just super painful. And the group that split off, they got a new preacher. And within a year of the church split, that new preacher died. And so this guy was thinking, well, I guess God's on our side. But then within a year after that, the preacher for the group who stayed, he died. And so this guy's going, I don't know whose side God is on. Exactly. This guy felt insecure. He wasn't sure what to think. He wasn't for sure what to do with this. You see, when we wish God would validate our team and squash the other team, and yet he doesn't, it makes us feel vulnerable, a little less sure-footed, a little less confident, because we like our team. We like our tribe. I mean, we picked our team. We picked our party. And so, of course, we want God to do the same thing, to validate us, like to give us a sense of security and a sense of rightness. We want to feel right. I mean, haven't we done this in every single marriage argument ever in the history of the world? You know how it goes. Husbands, you get in a little spat with a wife, and so then you pull away, and you haven't prayed in a while, but you're like, oh, Lord, thank you that I'm right. I just pray you'd show her where she's wrong. I need her to see that. Thank you, right? And wives, you do the same thing, you know? You get in a little spat and you pull away and you're like, oh Lord, I'm just trying to be humble here. Would you help him? I don't want to say it to him, but you show him where he's wrong, right? We all do this. And parents, you do this in arguments with your children. And children, you do this in arguments with your parents. We are all like Joshua where we've picked our side. We've picked our team. We're going, God, you be on my team. I mean, you're on my side, right? Come on, God, validate me. And when God doesn't pick our team or when God simply says, nope, I'm God, it makes us feel vulnerable. So what do we do? Like, how do we respond in those moments? Oh, please hear this. Better than asking God or trying to convince God to pick your preferences, better than like scanning circumstances and seeing, oh, it's going good for them, God must be on their team. Oh no, it's going bad for them. No, now God's on our team, this is great. Better than asking God to bless your thing, your tribe, your team, the better response is to respond like Joshua does in Joshua chapter five. After God makes Joshua vulnerable, it says this at the end of verse 14 and into 15, Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. I, I don't know how to preach that. Like, it's just this beautiful, powerful, incredible moment. And for me, a radically humbling moment. When I wish God would just say, Doug, I'm on your team. Don't worry, I'm for you and against them. I want God to pick my side. But I know I need to respond like Joshua. So let me just read this again. And as I read it, listen, and let's just pray that God would give us the grace to respond like Joshua. When Joshua was feeling vulnerable with his tribes, with his communities, 
Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Listen, City Light, better than asking God to pick your preferences is God calling us to worship him. Better than hoping that God would be on your team and validate your thinking or your philosophy or your thing is God calling you to validate him as God alone. He is on the throne alone and unwilling to share it with anybody. God is holy. We are not. God is holy. We take off our sandals. Or in a day like today, our boots and six pairs of socks. Okay? God is holy. We worship him. And he receives our worship. Would you pray with me? I want to invite us into a time of worshiping God as holy. A moment for us in our hearts, right, where God wants us to be vulnerable to him. In our hearts, let's respond and worship God alone as holy. Maybe for some of us in this room, I I know this sounds like um, cheesy symbolism, but maybe for some of us, we need to take our sandals off. We need to say, you know what, God? You are holy, I'm not. God, I worship you. Instead of asking you to bless my thing or pick my thing, I'm going to worship you alone as holy, you alone as God, you alone as on the throne. And I bow before you. I worship you. Oh, Father God, I pray right now for all of us. Would you draw near to us? Would you open up our hearts to you? We want to be vulnerable to you in the most powerful part of who we are, our hearts. And I ask that you would help us to see that we're also vulnerable to you, even in our needs, our most basic needs, and when we come to you and find you faithful there. And when it comes to our communities, our tribes, those people, pockets, that we feel, man, they get us. Oh God, may we find that we belong to you even more greatly. And our worship belongs to you, Our adoration belongs to you, for you alone are holy. You alone are God. Just like in Joshua chapter 5, it said, Joshua looked and lifted up his eyes, and behold, oh God, I'm asking that you would help us look, lift up our eyes, help us behold you. And in particular, could you help us see Jesus? Jesus as the Holy One, pure, perfect, spotless, righteous Lamb of God. Could you help us see Jesus in His holiness dying for us even on the cross? Man, for some of us, we just need to be reconnected to the old story of the gospel. We need to be reconnected to the beautiful vision of Jesus dying in our place for our sins on the cross. And He's the Holy One who took on our sins so that we could become holy in Him. So even in this moment, Jesus, we give you praise and adoration. We love you, Jesus, for taking our sin and giving us your holiness. For taking our unrighteousness and giving us instead your righteousness. Oh, Jesus, we worship you alone. You sit on the throne. You stay there. You are alone and you're reigning and ruling and we worship you. Oh, God, thank you for your son, Jesus. We worship him. You are holy. And we're here for you. We pray in Jesus' good name.
Amen.